You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Commander Richard Jaddick, DO. Dr. Jaddick is the author of On Call in Hell. He's also been decorated with a Bronze Star and a Citation for Combat Valor. He is the only naval physician to be so decorated. Today we discuss medical care under fire. Thank you very much for joining me, doctor. Thanks for having me. I know you volunteered when you didn't really have to. You might even be considered a short-timer. But could you tell me a little bit about why you volunteered at the time you went with the 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment? I had known the 1-8 from before on a previous deployment, and I I thought when I saw the emails that some of the physicians weren't going to make it because they had orders or they were going to residency, and that we had a shortage, my division surgeon called me over and we were talking about something else, and he just happened to ask me, you know, who I thought was a good candidate to go. And it was something I always wanted to do. I wanted to go back. I wanted to be a part of the, the team. I love being a battalion surgeon, and it just came out. I said, oh, you could send me. He kind of looked at me. I was expecting him to say maybe you were too old or too much experience. Maybe we need you to stay home. But uh, he kind of lit up and said, that's a good idea. So that's what I did. I'm glad at 38 he didn't think you were too old. (laughs) Exactly. But at one time, I remember, there is no age limit on being a physician in the military. I don't know if it's still that way. That's correct. The battalion surgeon who replaced me was a reserve battalion surgeon, and he was 58. So he came in with a reserve battalion and was was a practicing neurosurgeon when he went back. You mentioned a phrase just now, battalion surgeon. And in your book, you say, I think this is one of the greatest jobs ever. Could you tell me why? Battalion is a group of infantrymen who, uh, it's a number's about 800 to 1,000, and there's a commanding officer, and then there's companies, and there's a very rigid command structure. Being a battalion surgeon is a, a little bit like being a part of that infantry team, but still being Navy and having your own identity. And it's like being a club within a club in the dealings you have, this camaraderie you have with the Marines and the sailors that you work with is deep. You sweat together, you struggle together, you live together, you sleep and you eat together, and you still respect each other tremendously for the jobs that each one of you has to do. And It's something that I'll never forget. I'm not sure that it's easy to find, and I knew that I found it with the Marines and loved doing it. This particular unit has often been referred to as the Beirut Battalion because it was in Beirut, I believe, when one of the first terrorist attacks took place, and I believe over 200 Marines were killed in that. It's had a long history. It's been to Guadalcanal, I believe, and it's actually been to Katrina. Where is that particular battalion right now? You know, I think the battalion is currently just came back from a mew and is back in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I'm glad to hear that. They just finished a, a deployment. Could you tell me a little bit about that first week in Fallujah where you got your baptism in a firefight? The first week in Fallujah... And actually, before we had gone into the city of Fallujah, outside of Fallujah is the military base camp, Camp Fallujah. And that's where the Marines have a large portion of their headquarters. That's where we went to actually set up the battle plan. And my first week, my first probably five days before we did the assault, was spent in planning casualty evacuations and knowing what my assets were and and knowing how to get to Marines and what it was going to take and the time it was going to take. And The best way that I found was not trying to get the Marines back to us, but for us to go to the Marines. That was my first couple of days, and when time came on and we sat with the assembly area, which is 
this area right behind what we call the forward edge of the battle area. We sat there in preparation for the assault about 24 hours beforehand, and then we went into the assault. It was the first day after that. We got the call for the first casualty. And typically, I try and figure out which casualties I think I need to go in for from that point. And this one was the first one, and he had a gunshot wound to the chest and was tachycardic and alive and somebody I thought that I needed to go see. So I did. I went in with a mobile assault platoon, and Lieutenant Kudelik was running it, and I, I got into his vehicles, and we headed into the city. And once inside Fallujah, we got off the vehicles and patrolled for almost 45 minutes trying to find this Marine. And through the chaos and, and the clutter, things, again, started just solidifying my mind that this is going to take a long time to get a Marine out of here by, by road. And we found this Marine and, and put him in the ambulance, and he was stable, and all I did was put a chest seal on him. And that's when I got the second call from the battalion operations officer, Kevin Trimble. And he, he gave me a call that I'll never forget. And he said, you know, Doc, it's your call. Bravo Company's ambushed. And he said it in such a tense, serious way that I knew that this was, was bad. And I, I knew the company commander well from Bravo Company, and that's what we did. We we turned the vehicle around and headed down where Bravo Company was at the edge and had been ambushed at the cultural center. And I'll never forget rolling into that. Very surreal. You hear these things that are going on outside the vehicle, but you don't see anything because it's dark in the back of a, a completely closed, tracked vehicle, and you can hear rounds hitting the vehicle and, and RPGs exploding, and you can smell the cordite, and then all of a sudden the hatch opens, it just drops to the ground, and you are immersed in complete chaos. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and my guest today is Dr. Richard Jaddick, D.O. We discussed today medical treatment under fire. Is this when you began to develop the concept of bringing the medical team closer to the line of fire, actually into a center of a firefight? that this might have even taken place in a pickle factory. I had spent some time as a, as a general surgery intern and then again as a second year knowing that trauma is getting treatment as quickly as possible to a patient. You know, we talk about the golden hour, but really, in, in all reality, as quickly as possible. And we really practice that. And Initially, people think, you know, we need to get the casualties back as fast as possible. But what I found is in penetrating combat trauma in urban combat zones, First of all, traveling several blocks can be excruciatingly slow, even if you're traveling back because the enemy has so many places to hide that you may go forward a block and then not be able to get back. So the things that need to be done, the, the tourniquets and the packing of wounds and the, just stop the bleeding, need to be done right away and they need to be done there. And the best thing for us to do was to get people to the injury, to the point of injury, and that was our mission. After that point, I, I decided that if we can get to any Marine on the battlefield within five minutes, that's going to save lives. And we did that. Your commanding officer feels that you saved at least 30 lives. There were probably at least 60 service people killed and over 600 injured in that first 10 days of fighting. I know you don't take the complete credit, and you've always, and when I've heard you in the past and read your articles about you in Newsweek, have attributed much of the success of your operation to the corpsman. Could you tell me a little bit about the Marine corpsman? Yeah, I can tell you that saving the lives of 30 people or, or treating that many wounded, it's ridiculous to think that you can do that by yourself. If you don't have people who are as willing to step forward as you are, then it's not going to happen. My senior corpsman, my chief, 
the guys who were older and more seasoned were numbered about four. The rest of them were brand new, straight out of core school or out of a hospital, and they were expected to do a lot of different things and to think on their own. And and we tried to train up to that point where they I tried to put them in a lot of stress, whether it was just stress of getting yelled at or combat patrols or whatever, just to get them their heads in the game. And when we got down to where we were in a combat situation, they all performed unbelievably. But first off, they're not Marines. They're Navy corpsmen. So they're Navy enlisted folks who come in and choose to go with the Marine Corps. So they have their hearts with the Marines. We force them. They live with the line companies. They live with the Marines that they're going to support. These guys do everything together. So there's definitely a bond there. Our motto was, you know, through the gates of hell for a wounded Marine and every one of them. Every one of my corpsmen lived up to that. You know, you touched on something. You know, a doctor in private practice avoids taking care of his family and close friends. Here you are, a physician, seeing your patient, somebody who you've lived with and eaten with and palled around with under the most intimate of conditions, and suddenly you have to take care of them. How does this affect not only you but the corpsman? I know it affects the corpsman a lot. It affects anybody who has to do that a lot. I think for, for myself, I, I tried to compartmentalize. As dirty as it sounds, I, I tried to treat them as patients and not think about them until after it was over, and I could sit down and actually think my emotions away. For the corpsman, there was always a point, and especially when we had Marines who didn't come back alive, where they knew who it was. There was mud and caked on grime, and these young Marines would come in, and they were not alive anymore, and they would come to us in poncho liners or off the back of a truck, and you couldn't recognize them. And you'd see their face, but things were not... The, the way they should be on a young kid in combat. And then you'd see their name tag, and you would know who it was, and you could tell that one of your corpsmen would know him more than the rest of the corpsmen would know him. And that really affected a lot of these guys. I, I tried very hard not to... Uh, if we knew that bodies were coming back, I tried to keep the corpsmen from having to go through the task of preparing the bodies to get evacuated. So you set up a morgue somewhat separate from the corpsman. Yes. You know, I haven't mentioned that uh, you're in the midst of a urology residency. To be honest, most people don't think about a urologist doing what you were doing. What prepared you to meet the task that was handed you? I always thought I wanted to go into family practice. And when I started going through internship with the military, you don't have to make a decision until after your internship. And then you're going to go away for a couple of years anyway. So you have time to think it through. So I did a surgical internship thinking that would help me when I wanted to do a family practice residency. And I really enjoyed surgery so much that I thought, how can I get these both together? And, and I found that urology was, was a perfect match. There's enough of that hometown doctor take care of a patient for a long period of time, but it still incorporated enough uh, surgical opportunities and office procedures that, that it really worked for me. But in between all that, I had been a urology resident prior to going back to what we call general medical officer, and the program closed. So when I left, I said, well, the Marine Corps took me back as a, as a GMO, and I went off as a MU surgeon and, and took over a brigade before going back to residency again, and I had thought I was going to get out. So the opportunity they gave me to come back and, and do a urology program here at MCG, which has been absolutely perfect for me. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it's a long road. It's a long way about things, the way I've gone, but my training as a urologist, the trauma that I got as a general surgery resident, as, a, as an intern, and then follow-on training as a second year. I spent time up at the R. Adams Cali Shock Trauma Unit in Baltimore. All these things 
kind of prepared me in kind of a, an offhanded way because everything I did up to the point that I went to Fallujah made sense when I was in Fallujah, even though if you look at it, it's so haphazard. It doesn't look like it was adding up to anything. But when I was in Fallujah, the trauma training, the Marine background, all of this opportunity to be a battalion surgeon before and have higher headquarters opportunities, it just all came together. And for probably one split second of my life, as I came off the back of that track in the ambush, it all made sense. I'm here. I've got all this stuff. I've got the right tools. I can make a difference. I want to thank Commander Richard Jaddick, D.O., who's been visiting with us, and we've been discussing medical care in Iraq. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. You've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.